President Carter has arrived in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a brief... Go to America, go to He will fall in fire. Because cables now. I think cable history is exciting. And personally, I believe this is such a wonderful industry. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Head End, the Cable Center's podcast series featuring the industry's visionaries and leaders sharing their unique insights and experiences. I'm your host, Luke Woodruff. The content presented in this series is edited from the audio and video recordings found in the collections of the Cable Center's Barco Library and the Hauser Oral and Video History Project. This week we have a special two-part episode, Cable Cowboys and American Entrepreneurs. Back in the early days of cable distribution in the 1950s and of satellite-delivered network programming in the 1970s, it took a certain type of business person to not just survive, but thrive under such harsh conditions. It took brilliant vision, a high-risk tolerance, and a dodged tenacity. It also took an absolute personal belief in cable's potential to forever change television and communications and the roles they came to play in our society. The six industry leaders featured in the next two episodes are all prime examples of individuals who put it all on the line to build, shape, and grow the cable business. And today, their influence is still strongly felt throughout the world. From the time he was a college student in the mid-70s, John Hendricks wondered why there weren't more documentaries on TV. As more cable networks launched over the next decade, he quit his job, took out a second mortgage, and pursued his idea of a cable network dedicated to history, science, and technology programming. After three years of planning and fundraising, the Discovery Channel launched in June of 1985, but it took additional investment by several cable operators the following year to save it from bankruptcy. Today, Discovery Communications' portfolio of content brands have a collective global footprint of more than 3 billion viewers in more than 200 countries. And now... Cable Cowboys and American Entrepreneurs. John Hendricks, the first moment you can remember when this whole idea of a need for a channel called Discovery. Well, I think probably the first glimmer of an idea about being involved in television, which kind of led to Discovery, was um, a moment I had in college, actually, when I was uh, a work-study student. I was a history student at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And uh, my job was to get in um, some of the 16 millimeter films at the time. This was, I was in college in 1970 to 74 timeframe. And um, uh, I remember one of the faculty members uh, who was uh, wanted to, uh, he was at that point in his American history curriculum when he was at the uh, McCarthy hearings. And there was a nice 16 millimeter film that had uh, captured the, the hearings that were one of the first televised. Uh, I think they were the first televised hearings. Um, and I, at that moment, when I got that 16 millimeter film in, I went to his class so I could see it. And I thought, well, why can't this be on television? Why can't it be, you know, on a Saturday morning? Couldn't one of the local broadcast, um, you know, stations there in Huntsville, for example, carry like documentaries? Because I, I had all these catalogs that you would order these films from. I remember the names Encyclopedia Britannica Films. There was a company called Films, Inc. There was Time Life Films. And um, I remember calling uh, the local broadcaster 
just to just to ask that question. And there was just a laugh at the other end of the line that, you know, who is this kid calling up? And then I thought we had teleprompter cable. And I remember making a call to just ask why. And uh, the, the general manager or an assistant general manager who was on the line said, uh, son, you don't understand. We, we can't do anything but retransmit broadcast programming. And so, again, I just kind of filed that away. I never thought about it until 1975. I remember reading, by that time I was in the Washington area, and I remember reading in the Washington Post about um, this company called Home Box Office that was challenging that FCC rule kind of challenging the laws of the land that that cable could only retransmit broadcast programming and uh, a movie channel was born. And so I, I, at that moment, I just said, well, that's interesting. You know, I think that, that something's going to come of this. So it was in researching cable. And I remember it was in April of 82 that I saw some of the trade magazines. I, would, I think it was Cablevision was around. I would just remember getting some of the trade magazines and reading about cable television. How did you remember? And it was at that it? moment, and it was at that moment that I thought, well, there really is not a good place for this on cable, but there ought to be. And that, that was in April of 82 that I then started thinking there should be a channel where there who, could be. Who did you talk to? I mean, who... Did you sit around with anybody at that time and kind of strategize about there should be no, a No, I remember uh, talking to my wife about it. She was the first person that that um, heard the idea. I asked Maureen, I said, what would you think about if there was a cable channel that was just all documentaries, had everything from science and history, nature, you know, human adventure, uh, would have things like, you know, that would trace our roots in civilization, um, you know, like what Ed Bauman's tried to do with this series. And, and I remember she said, well, this is such a great idea, you know, why isn't someone like Ted Turner doing it? <laughs> that was her first reaction. 1982. Right. Who's the first person you talked to? Well, in a, my wife, and then it was just kind of a circle of friends. And then probably the first professional person I talked to, I went to see Winfield Kelly, who was the local cable operator. He was. He had uh, won the franchise. He was the former former county executive, and he had won the franchise to wire after he left office, uh, Prince George's County. So he Store Communications was the company that was wiring uh, Prince George's County. So I went to talk to him about it. Now Prince George's County, for those listening, abuts Washington D.C. That's I mean, right. Yeah. So it's right in the in the area. Yeah. And so I talked to him. And he was encouraging. It wasn't like he said, you know, this is something that won't work. He said, you know, we need content. And um, so he recommended that I fly down to um, Florida. I'm trying to remember where in Florida. I think it was around the Fort Lauderdale area. A store. Piece. Store. Yeah. To meet with uh, Peter Store and Ken Bagwell. I remember those two names. To talk about the idea. And that meeting was like a month away. And I was so excited. <laughs> and so I spent working, researching, because I knew they would ask all these questions. And, and I knew kind of the fundamental risk. You know, I'd, by this time, this was um, late summer. So I'd kind of thought through the idea from spring through the summer. And so by the, the late summer, I'd met Winfield Kelly. I, I think actually the meeting was in, in, ended up being in December of 83 down in Florida. But that was my 83. first. 83. Yeah, this was 83. But you're, this, you're how old then? 
when I was um, 152, so 83, I was 31. And you do you remember the meeting itself? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In Fort Lauderdale. This was in Fort Lauderdale. When Phil Kelly came down, he went with me. And um, they, it was not a good time for them. They had, uh, they were very close on some of their bank covenants, I recall, from the conversation. And cable was regulated at the time. Um, they were having trouble adjusting their rates. And while they thought they, they're very encouraging, extremely encouraging. I remember one thing that came out of it, which was something I was working on. I had incorporated um, in September of 82. And I didn't know what the brand name was going to be. I just knew it was going to be educational. So I incorporated it as Cable Educational Network. And they said, you've got to come up with a better name. And I said, I know, I know, I know. So on the plane on the way back, this was in December of 83. Um, yeah, 83. It was when I um, wrote down five words. Uh, Horizon, Vista, Discovery, Explorer. There was another one there. But I remember by the end of that trip, I had circled the word discovery because I thought everybody is attracted to that word. We were always very pleased with ourselves when we discover something. And it could work for history programs as well as science and technology programs to discover the future, discover the past. And so I felt that that was the word that had to be the cornerstone of the name. And so from that point on was when I... um, um, use the word Discovery Channel to talk about the concept. Can you remember who, whether it was Peter Storr or Ken Bagwell who said you got to have everybody? It was their name? marketing guy, and I wish I could remember his name, but it was the marketing guy that was in the meeting. They had about five or six people in the meeting, and the, the big questions were, was this going to be a pay service? And that's what I remember Winfield Kelly was kind of urging me, why don't you make it like a mini pay service, 3 or $4 a month? Um. And, or was it going to be a basic and be very, very affordable, almost next to nothing to the consumer and have more widespread coverage? And so those were the two thoughts I came away from. I've got to decide. I knew those were the two economic models, either be pay or basic. How um, long was the meeting? Um, it was probably three, around three hours. And did they all stay there the whole They all time? stayed there and listened to it. And I was presenting kind of the, the, the programming concepts, the schedules. Did you have a business plan then? Yeah, I had a business plan. Um, it, this was, I'm trying to think now, see, it was sept- September of 82 was the time I incorporated. And I know this meeting was late 83. So what I'd left out of the story was this almost a year-long process of doing the business plan, still doing my consulting business, but being fascinated and almost obsessed by this concept for a cable channel. Who was helping you with the business plan? Um, I had a, there was a fellow named Tom Newman, uh, interesting fellow who I had met, who was on the boards of one of the groups that it was uh, I was consulting with, and I knew that he knew venture capitalists, and so he I remember him buying me a book at the bookstore, and it was as simple as writing a business plan, <laughs> and I knew how to write and I knew how to do research, and that was kind of my whole training in college, and then also in writing proposals. And, and grants for colleges and universities and clients, the task was to try to, you know, boil down these ideas to paper and be able to submit a formal application. So it wasn't a strange process. And then do follow-up meetings to try to convince people to part with their money to support your project, whether it was a university project or another project. So this was something that was a little different in that this was a private enterprise and it was creating a business plan, but the kind of the 
the communication skills were the same. It was writing it up, you know, making sure it was well-researched. And so when you said people will watch this, you had the ratings data that could support that. And that's what I discovered in that year-long process of doing the business plan, that the top 24 of the top 25 shows in PBS's history, you know, weren't, weren't dramas or, you know, weren't performing arts, but were all these documentaries. Um, uh, you know, and the ratings when NBC, every now and then, would do a documentary. They called it the NBC White Paper. I remember they got good ratings. But these were just kind of little islands within the, the network schedules. But I knew that, you know, if you could start a channel and it was consistently in this format that people would come to it and watch. Now, did how much of uh, in your head at that time was, I'm going to make a lot of money? I don't think that was a part part of it. I, I thought, I remember thinking, into, you know, I wanted to desperately to be independent <laughs> and, you know, to be in business for myself. And then, but this was something that just captivated me because I thought there was a real need for it. It was something that, uh, and it's always a classic mistake by an entrepreneur. Sometimes, you know, just because you want something or you think there's a need for it, is there a lot of other people? You know, a lot of people will solve a problem, but it's a problem that, you know, doesn't meet a real fundamental consumer need. But I really felt like television had so much to offer and that it hadn't in the past. We were kind of victims by what I call the triopoly, you know, of ABC, CBS, and NBC for so many years. Those were the only three choices. And with and they program for the masses. And unfortunately, when you program for the masses, it's the lowest common denominator programming that will typically get, you know, the 30 or 35 rating at that time. And uh, what got ignored, you know, was, was programming that could enlighten people and inspire people. And that's what I saw was the kind of a huge promise that cable television offered. And what was your initial capital that you thought you were going to need? I thought um, that we could get to break even in about three years with $25 million in funding. You needed it up front? 25 million? I didn't need it all up front, but I needed about a million dollars a month that in the beginning that would then slowly go down to maybe, you know, to by the third year, you know, starting that year at a, needing about $200,000 a month. I, it, it, the difficulty was cable was regulated and it was hard to get a license fee from cable operators. And so the 84 Act, though, you know, there was uh, came along and there was lots of debate in late 83 leading up into the to the 84 Act that was going to, you know, it looked like the, the signs were right for cable to get deregulated where they could charge what the market would bear and then be able to support content. And uh, so by, you know, as happenstance, that's what happened. So in comparison, years later, when we started Animal Planet, that was a $300 million investment. Um, so that's why I say the $25 million is kind of a paltry sum when you think about it today. But again, at that time, it was all the money in the world. It was, I remember checking you know, what were going to be the fixed expenses just to be a cable television network. And that first big expense is the satellite transponder. And even at that time, you could buy one for $12 million, That's out of the question. Or you could lease one for a monthly lease of, remember Westinghouse, how one that was $337,000 a month was the lease payment. That was a big part of that, that operating expense line that we would have to have. Then add to that the staff, the programming. And um, on programming, I was fortunate in being able to 
because I knew that there were these documentaries are out there. I knew that the BBC, everything that they had done, they had uh, put on 16 millimeter film because an aftermarket was renting those films, whether it's about World War II or politics or whatever. Um, you, colleges and universities could rent them. So I knew there was content available and I was able to meet with representatives of the BBC and, you know, for them, it was just found money. The U.S. cable rights was a right that had never existed. And so I remember doing a small contract where I said, if I pay you $25,000 to get an option on 500 hours that I will license from you at, I think it was like $2,000 an hour. And so for them, you know, it was a million dollars that was just found money. And for me, it was the basis of, you know, um, a business, you know, a, a cornerstone of content that I could count on. So there was a number of libraries like that. There was um, TV Ontario in Canada. I looked at English-speaking markets around the world, Australia, Canada, and, and the UK, where there was a higher value that had been put on documentary entertainment in their television systems. And, um, and, and certainly that was the case in Canada as well as in the UK. And, and, it's, and there was a good natural history library that I remember we could tap into that was um, in Australia. Now, in that first business plan, how much of it was going to be you, yours? How much of that company? All, uh, Percentage-wise? In terms of the contribution? Ownership. Well, the ownership uh, early on was, you know, you go from owning 100% of something, but that moment that you, you know, uh, start selling stakes, you go down from there. And so that first tranche, I believe we were selling 40% of the company for something like six, $6 million was the attempt. And, um, and you had the 60% at yeah, that point, right? It, you alone, or were there other people around you? There was, um, there was, uh, Suzanne Hayes, um, was a person I had met. She was actually sold me a computer, but she always wanted to be in television. And uh, she was a bright person from, um, had recently graduated from the University of Virginia. And um, I hired her, and she was our head of programming. And it was her job to go and meet with the BBC and all these people. So all these people I gave, you know, little pieces of stock to. So there was a core of about three or four people uh, in the early days that had some stock. And then that stock was ultimately cashed out in 89 because we wanted to keep the company private. And that's, that's a little further into the story. Um, but there were some early people. Who were the others? Do you remember? Um, there's a guy named Bob McCleary. Bob McCleary uh, was very important in that he, he worked at the University of Maryland, and he was head of the radio, television, film department. And he was another person that I talked to early on to say, do you think this would work? And um, Bob was very, very um, supportive of the concept and said, you know, if you can get funding for this, I'll join you. And so he started as a consultant, and as soon as we got our first funding, he left to be then our vice president for programming. Uh, and he brought the television credentials that I didn't have. Uh, and I needed to have people who really knew how to produce television uh, to have, you know, a chance of raising, you know, funds for this. Um, a fellow named Joe Maddox uh, knew, I picked that model, not pay, because I wanted it to get more home. So I thought, let's go the basic model. It'll be a struggle to get a license fee, but I think that companies will want to be associated with products like this. So I remember on television at the time, General Motors was very supportive of programming on PBS. And I thought, well, you know, maybe in their advertising, they would, they would like to be associated. 
And uh, Joe Maddox was someone who was worked on Madison Avenue um, and was a good ad salesperson. And so he was part of that uh, original team as well. Give us some of the idea of the programming you put up there that first week. Um, it was a, primarily a selection from the BBC and from TV Ontario. Uh, it was programs. Um, I remember there was a great TV Ontario science show on Einstein that was up there. There was a BBC show that was as part of the mix. It also was part of our uh, launch day package, which was called Iceberg Alley. It was just a, a show about dealing with the icebergs of the North Atlantic and about, you know, um, you know, how they develop and how ships have to avoid them. Uh, we had lots of nature programming. The BBC uh, provided a lot of content from their natural history unit, as did TV Ontario. So it, it really did have the full gamut of what you know, we saw as the Discovery Channel, science, nature, history, travel, human adventure. And uh, I was very careful to try to have all of those genres within documentary entertainment kind of portrayed during that sneak preview week, as well as we worked from our promo tape. We had logo development, and so we were able to develop, I think, uh, quite good interstitial material so that it, it looked like a polished week's worth of programming. Can you remember anybody coming up to you saying, Discovery, what a great name, or the opposite, hey. No, everybody responded very positively to Discovery. Okay, let's go back. Um, 85, you were about to say that you ran out of money at the end of 85. How many employees did you have, say, January 1986? By that time, about 37, 38. How many subscribers were able to watch? We had about 6 million. And the word of mouth was real good on Discovery. So there's all these positive things. I mean, you know, consumers were sending thank you letters to cable operators. And um, how many advertise? I mean, how, who and then, some of the bigger advertisers then? Um, well, we ended up getting a lot of the automotives. We got, uh, I think, all uh, all of the majors uh, automotives were on with us. Um, we started, you know, life with a lot of the direct response advertising. But by the end of the year, we had some some of the blue chips, like General Motors. I recall was a, a lead advertiser of Discovery. So you're out of money. What'd you do? Well, um, we Allen Company was searching the world. I was going to, they would sit, set me up with uh, meetings, you know, like the Bob Wright meeting and, you know, that, that came out negative. Um, were you looking for money from Bob Wright? Yeah, we were looking for six. At that point, we were another 40%. I was like, you know, 60, we were going to sell. Again, we didn't think we could get the next 20 million. Again, there was still, the business plan looked like we were right on. It would still take about 25 million. We'd gone through five. We needed another 20. It was like too much to expect to get 20 million dollars in a short time period. So we were trying to sell five or six million and sell as much as 40 percent of the company to get that critical, rather than go bankrupt because we were right on the verge. And um, there was a couple of fellows at uh, EF Hutton, who's an investment banking firm, kind of independent at that time, uh, said they had a client that was interested. Um, and that was the Chronicle Publishing Company, which also had Western Communications they owned, which was a cable system. And they had a young guy there by the name of Leo Hendry, who uh, was recommending that they get involved. And so um, we had lots and lots of meetings with E.F. Hutton and Leo Hendry. And... Um, on the day we were to close, we got word that Leo had not gotten the approval of his board to make the investment. 
and that was disaster. For 1986. Us. This this was yeah this was uh, late January early February and that was the closest we came. My wife calls that Black Tuesday. It was on a Tuesday we, we got the word we were supposed to close. It was in the morning. I was we were going to close on six million dollars. Thought this was a done deal. Yeah, it was a done deal. We'd let all of our other prospects kind of evaporate because we were just concentrating on closing this investment. And uh, that was a real tough time for everybody involved, not only myself, all of our employees didn't all, you know, I, I try to shield them from all the, you know, the bad news. But this was something that we had to be more transparent about because if we were going to go out of business, which it looked like we were going to in the next few weeks, they had to start looking for other jobs. Literally going to shut her down. Yeah. Because it was, I mean, we owed so much money. We owed um, Harlan Rosenzweig a bunch of money at Group W. We owed uh, all my vendors, BBC, everybody. By that time, you know, we had, you know, done lots of contracts and owed, you know, some three, I think we're up to around $3 million in payables. Did you know? And all of whom, you have to realize, I had called and said yet again. It looks good. We're going to close next Tuesday. We'll have the funding. I'll have your check in the mail on Wednesday morning. You should get it by the end of next week, that kind of thing. You know, it was things like, you know, owing suppliers $50,000 to, you know, a printer here, 50000 to, you know, some agency who had done advertising, um, you know, support. And, uh, and But most of it was for programming and satellite time. Did you notice any change in people toward you as the money was no longer there. I mean, you notice you go through the excitement of you're on the air and people are all excited and patting yeah. you on the back and then all of a sudden. No well, money. I think the real strength was the people within the organization is that, you know, I thought when I just leveled with them and said that Tuesday afternoon when I had a meeting that the funding didn't come through and they all knew this was kind of the, the shot that, you know, that most of them wouldn't show up for work the next day. Um, Cause I it was pretty, I just said, you know, I've got to be honest with you. I, I we don't have the money except these magazine subscriptions coming in, <laughs> you know, it's kind of paying the payroll. And that was the priority. You know, I would let all the other vendors, you know, kind of wait because a Westinghouse could wait. Whereas my employees, I felt couldn't wait for their paycheck. Go back and to that. All of them showed up to work on Wednesday morning, said we're here until the bitter end. So you're faced with thinking you're going to close with the Chronicle company. Right. And they're going to provide $6 million. Right. Had Leo Henry told you up to that point, I've got the money. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was a done deal. And then at what point and who told you I do not have the money? Um, he didn't call. It was um, the two very embarrassed um, bankers at EF Hutton. What was the reason given? That the in, at in the end the board did not have uh, did not give approval. Why had he told you that they had the money? I guess he thought that he had either sold the board on the idea and um, had misread the board, but uh, we did not have the money. What was your reaction? Oh, we were crestfallen. I mean, it ranged from, I remember Westinghouse said they were wanted to sue <laughs> E.F. Hutton and the Chronicle Publishing Company and, you know, because they were going to stand a lot to lose. They were counting on, I think, a check of $900,000, you know, three months of, of uh, satellite time. And so a lot of people were upset. Allen Company was upset. And um, I guess there was, it was it was so bad for me because I, some of the biggest supporters of Allen Company, they were who had always been up, said, oh, you know, now we've you've got to get yourself ready psychologically for the next steps, which was bankruptcy, and that was, and then you know that was a very painful night that that Tuesday night, 
And then uh, my Wednesday morning, I said, you know, I'm, there's got to be other people out there. We've gone this far. So on Wednesday morning, I called Dick Crooks at Allen and Company. I said, you know, I read in one of the trade magazines <laughs> over Christmas that this guy named John Malone said, now that the industry looked like it was going to be deregulated, then 87, even the, the 84 Act had passed. And uh, as of December 86, I believe in the law, cable operators could adjust their rates for the first time at market prices. And Malone had made a little comment that says, you know, this shouldn't go to our bottom line. We should think about reinvesting in content, using a portion of these funds to reinvest in content, because that's what's really going to drive cable. I remember that little line. So I asked Dick Crooks, I said, does anybody up there know John Malone? And Dick Crooks said, yeah, one of our associates here, Paul Gould, knows him real well. They've done some deals together. And so Paul Gould called John Malone that Wednesday. This, remember, this is the day after. And said, and basically, they laid out a line. I said, John, we're, he told Malone, as I've heard the story from both sides, uh, he said, John, we've, we've got a problem with one of our investments. It's called the Discovery Channel, and it's going to go bankrupt within a matter of weeks if we can't find the next round of financing. And um, the response that John said was, we can't let anything happen to the discovery. This is what cable's all about. And so then the next day, John had John C., who was his vice president, on an airplane to Washington. We met here in Washington at one of the hotels. And, and um, one of the most remarkable things is that without even a long formal agreement, it's basically on a letter understanding, uh, TCI, Malone authorized a $500,000 just immediate investment just to tide us over so I could send some money out. Um, and that was that happened, I mean, within a week. Why do you think he did it other than the reason that we can't let that place die? Is there any other reason? Um, he had, well, I had never met him. He was so well aware of discovery um, and had 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 kind of put that in his mind. These are this is one of the good things on cable. You know, you got C-SPAN, you got CNN, you've got Discovery, you've got good things happening. Even like American movie classics. You know, reintroducing people to the classic movies. These were going to be the kinds of distinct programming that cable could offer. And so John just wasn't aware of all the finances behind it, and just knew that to t now take Discovery off would be a step backwards for cable systems to lose that. And so uh, that then started the process of getting it beyond TCI. I, I didn't want to like one big owner, one big shareholder taking that whole amount. And, and TCI um, also wanted to bring in others as well. So it started with T that introduction to TCI and with John C. And I remember that meeting um, here in Washington. He was saying, who else do you think we could bring in? I was asking him the same thing. And we, we thought that um, the upcoming NCTA convention was going to be March in Dallas. This would have been the convention in 86. And um, we thought if we could just meet with Bob Myron, he was an industry leader, that maybe he would, you know, would respond to it. And then we thought the people at Cox would be good partners, uh, Comcast. We had a whole list of, of prospects. We felt that Bob Myron would be a good next step. And then so it was in Dallas that John C., Suzanne Hayes, my programming person, and myself, and uh, uh, Bob Myron met in a Chinese restaurant in a mall. 
somewhere in Dallas. And I remember Bob Myron looking over the numbers and thinking, well, I didn't, I wasn't presenting anything, but just going through his mind, what would make it a success? And he, he thought the biggest risk is, could we get to 20 million subscribers and average a nickel, you know, as a license fee? And in the end, he thought that was reasonable. And that base of support, advertising would be kind of gravy on top of that. But if you could just get 20 million subscribers paying you that nickel, then that would be uh, a month. That would be, you know, a million dollars a month that you could count on, you know, to uh, support your operations. He did that on a napkin. It was like going through. I often ask him, Bob, if we should have saved that napkin. <laughs> so Bob was in. So that, that was very important. So we were... At that point, things were looking up. We had, and, and Bob said, I'll help you like TCI is too, and we can maybe get some other people. And then Bob started making some telephone calls and got a few people that he thought were, would, would be right for an investment who declined, who wished they didn't. He called uh, Brian Roberts and Ralph Roberts, and they liked the concept of discovery, and they, uh, but they uh, declined the investment opportunity. Called Continental, called Amos. And Amos uh, regrets that he declined, but you know he wasn't an interested investor, but was encouraging on the on the whole uh, channel idea. But then we we found um, the the next investor would, was uh, Cox, and um, I met Jim Robbins at an airport that spring, and uh, he he committed to the venture. And then um, right there in Denver, John C also arranged for me to meet with uh, Gene Schneider and the people at United Cable. And they assigned a young fellow, Nimrod Kovach, to the project. And so those were the four then by uh, midsummer. They all provided uh, interim financing, uh, then, but they then closed on a $20 million round uh, commitment in the summer. And that was all we needed to, to get to break even. When was the first time, first quarter you made money? Um, it was the... Fourth quarter of 1988 was the first time that the monthly, um, during that, for that whole quarter, the monthly revenue exceeded the monthly expenses. And we were just running out of that, that capital, but then we became um, uh, positive in our cash. And we had, then we had banks lined up that were committed, because now we had some big players involved. They were committed to, if we needed additional capital to expand. Uh, that they would provide the bank financing. Looking back, what did not work? Um, there was some, uh, I had an idea early on for a, a channel focused on people and biography that we just couldn't get off the ground. I remember having a nice promo tape for it. and It was called Discovery in Person. Um, we, CBS had a channel that they converted to Ion People. We ended up acquiring that and using that to support you know, the Travel Channel launches and some others. Um, we are convinced that video on demand is the future. And we had that thought uh, early on. We, we created a, a research project called Your Choice TV that proved itself in the market. All the consumers loved it. But it was the wrong, it was the right idea, but the wrong technology to implement it. We saw it as using um, digital compression on satellite, being able to take over, you know, four or five transponders converting those to digital signals. So with five transponders, you could have eight channels each, 40 channels of content. And why not devote those to, you know, the most popular things on television so that, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're a viewer of 60 minutes, 
Uh, you could watch that at any time. Uh, if you like book notes on C-SPAN, uh, why be wedded to the C-SPAN schedule? Uh, be able to access that at, at any time. Um, so that's going to happen. It'll just happen with DVR technology, you know, devices like TiVo, and it'll happen with regional file servers. But that didn't work out as a business. It worked out as a, as a concept that gave us a lot of confidence in, in the world of video on demand that, that we think is going to dominate us over the next you know, 10 years and change the way we do business. In 1979, Robert Johnson was a lobbyist for the NCTA when he took notice of all the new niche programming concepts at the annual convention. He thought he should be the person to start a network targeted at African Americans. He was passionate and persuasive enough to gain the support of Madison Square Garden network creator Bob Rosencrantz and TCI President John Malone. With a check for $500,000 from TCI and a berth as a Friday night, two-hour programming block on MSG, Black Entertainment Television premiered in January 1980. Eleven years later, BET went public and became the first African-American company traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And in 2001, BET Networks was sold to Viacom for $3 billion. Bob Johnson, in this interview for the Cable Center in Denver and the, the uh, oral history, can you remember back the very first moment you thought of doing something on television in cable? Um, yeah, I can probably remember the timing when I thought this is something that I would want to do. And it would be between... When I was at the NCTA in probably the latter part of uh, 79, when I would go to the conventions and see all of these new channels, these targeted channels cropping up, these niche channels. And it occurred to me at some point in time, somebody was going to start a channel targeted to African-Americans. And I was sort of in the back of my mind concerned that it might not be me. And that sort of drove me more than anything else is that this sort of why not me? And uh, that's sort of when it began to sort of, uh, you know, become a, a passion, if you will. What was your job at the NCTA then? I was I was vice president of government relations. My principal job was to lobby for deregulation of pay TV. You remember the old pay TV rules that they had at the time. So because of that, I got a chance to know all of the guys who were involved in programming development as opposed to being to so close to the operators. Although, ironically, the guy who ended up helping me the most in making BET possible with me was Dr. John Malone, an operator. But my first uh, assignment was to be associated with guys like Ralph Baruch and Jerry Levin and Russell Karp and Bob Rosencrantz, who were sort of the programming wing, more or less, of the industry. How long had you been at the NCTA in 79? I started in 76. I just I got in the industry. It was just sort of fortuitous. Uh, I was living over in southwest D.C. at the time and went to a party at a next-door neighbor's house and was talking to this uh, woman who we got to talk, and she said, you know, you'd make a good lobbyist for the cable industry. And I said, I don't know anything about cable. And she said, don't worry. When I got in, I didn't know anything about it either. So who was it turned it? out? Yeah, it was Bob Schmidt's secretary. What was her name? God, it, I, I want to say Carol, but I, I, I'm not certain Carol Pat. But uh, she said, um, I, I used, I'd like you to meet this guy named Bob Schmidt. 
who was doing what then? He was then. Bob at that time was uh, president of the NCTA. And you were doing what? Then? I was a lobbyist. I was press secretary. Excuse me. I was press secretary for Walter Fauntroy. And who time. was he? Fauntroy, the congressional delegate from the District of Columbia. And I'd been with him for uh, since 73. And so about that time, I was looking for a change of career, if you will, to sort of pick up another stripe. I worked for the Washington Urban League, so I felt I had the social community kind of background. I worked on Capitol Hill as a press secretary for three years, so I had the political stripe. But I didn't have any business background, didn't have my business uh, sort of a focus. So I felt that, gee, cable gave me both. There was business and the politics of lobbying for cable deregulation. So when she mentioned the cable industry, I said, why not meet with Bob Schmidt? I met with Bob Schmidt, and I think we met for like an hour or so up on Capitol Hill, and he offered me the job. He's vice president of government relations. He, he not only wanted to have somebody to lobby, but he also Bob had a strong commitment to minority opportunity and employment in the cable industry. So he hired me and uh, I got my first job and uh, it was the it was a year of pay pay TV. And so I was in the middle of programming just like that. This may sound like an odd question, but how important was your the fact you were an African-American at that stage in your life? How much did you think about it? And then, of course, it's obviously leads to why a channel, but yeah. put, shape the world then for people that were African-Americans. Yeah, I, I didn't think about it in terms of, gee, I'm an African-American, ergo there follows some major mission in life because I'm black. But I recognized that as an African-American, I had to seek out opportunities in areas where African-Americans had not yet gone. And cable was one of those. I mean, there were a couple of uh, African-American guys who'd worked in the cable in the association before me, Don Anderson being one and another gentleman by the name of Sam Shepard, I think. But uh, I felt that here was sort of virgin territory for somebody who was African-American to sort of, uh, you know, pursue a career opportunity uh, in a way that no one else has done. And so it, it was it was an opportunity sort of laying out there for me the way I looked at it. And I felt what I had to do was to sort of be very effective, get to know the people in the room in a way that if I impressed them, I would have other opportunities to do business with them or to form relationships with them. So that was my thinking at the time. And then as the technology issue began to come to the surface, satellite cable, the marriage of satellite and cable, then it sort of hit me, aha, here's a chance to create something in the form of a content-based business. But it was more, gee, I'm in cable. I don't see a whole lot of blacks in cable. Here's a chance for me to sort of be first in my sort of uh, first in the position to uh, to benefit from that. Can you remember the first person you might have sat down with? You're at the NCTA working mm -hmm. for Bob Schmidt, a vice president, and you sit down with somebody and say, I want to start a channel for black Americans. I think the first person I started talking to, to that about was a guy uh, who's, I can't think of the guy's name, but, uh, but he was associated with Clive Runnels in Houston. Because at that point, Clive and those guys in Houston were building what was called this futuristic cable system that they were going to wire the homes both with cable and burglar alarm systems and everything else. So they were sort of open open to a lot of channel carries because they were supposedly building this this system with a lot of capacity. And then Houston being somewhat of an African-American market, it sort of occurred to me I should meet this guy. This guy's name, for some reason, I think it's Mickey Rourdon or something like that. But they, Gardner was. 
I don't think so, but I, I, I know the guy because he was like a financier type, and I sort of told him about my idea and talked about it to see if he could help me put together the money for it and everything else. Well, ultimately, it didn't happen. And then as I started getting more and more focused on the idea, I started talking to two people, uh, Bob, uh, Bob Rosencrantz and John Malone. And what did each one of those contribute? Well, Bob was, was first of all, a very, you know, uh, uh, sympathetic guy to young people with ideas that he wanted to, that uh, he wanted to help and, and support. And he had uh, uh, a, a dynamic executive named Kay Koplovitz who was working there with him. And uh, so she was also a programmer in orientation. So he was willing to uh, help me uh, get on the satellite uh, to get carriage. And I remember this. I, I'll never forget this day. Bob was testifying up on Capitol Hill. I was still a lobbyist at the time. Bob was testifying on Capitol Hill. He was making a presentation, and my job was sort of be the handholder staff guy. Can you remember what date it was? Uh, I can't remember the exact day, Brian, but I, it, it was it was somewhere before BET went on the air in 1980. So it's got to be somewhere in '79. Uh, Congress is in session, so it's in the in the in that during that period of time. So Bob goes up and delivers his testimony. And uh, or he's got a break before he goes to testimony. And uh, I said, Bob, can I talk to you a moment? He said, sure. You know, we got a break. I'm going to walk down to the men's room. So we walked down the hallway on in, in the on the Capitol. And uh, I started talking to him about this idea for BET. And I said, you know, what I really need is access to satellite. You know, I said, I think I can get the program. I think I can get the cable operators to carry it. And he said, you know, okay, that's something I think I can help you with. We could probably put you on in the back of our Madison Square Garden satellite, you know, give you how many hours you need. I said, can I get just a couple of hours? And that's what, you know, we agreed that he would give me, you know, uh, Friday night, 11 p.m. on the back of his satellite time. And uh, remember what he charged you? I don't I don't recall, but it probably was somewhere in the neighborhood of, I don't know, with two, two, two hundred, two hundred. Two hundred fifty dollars an hour, something like that, wasn't a lot of money, and, you know. In that sense, at this, you know, looking back on it, but at that time, it was, uh, you know, it was like when you multiply that times fifty-two weeks, you know, it started getting up to be some money. So, but you were still full time yeah. with the NCTA. I was still full time with the NCTA at that time, so that sort of got it going. And then later on, there was another encounter on Capitol Hill with a guy named Ken Silverman. Ken Silverman wanted to launch this channel for the elderly. And he asked me again to, as a lobbyist to accompany him on Capitol Hill to introduce him to various Congress members. He particularly wanted to meet Claude Pepper. Claude Pepper, former congressman from Florida, chairman of something called the Select Committee on Aging in the House. So we were going to meet Claude Pepper, figuring he would be obviously supportive of this idea for the elderly. So riding in a taxi up to Capitol Hill, I, sa I said, Ken, can I see your proposal? He and I had been friends because he was also in the pay TV world with a company called Cent America. And he showed me his documentation and he had these statistics about the elderly. The elderly have certain living patterns. They buy clothes and from based on their uh, uh, demographics. Uh, they eat certain kinds of foods. They consume certain kind of foods. They save in certain kind of ways and they spend in certain kind of ways. And I said, gee, Ken, you can say the same thing about the black community. The black community has certain buying habits. They have certain kind of consumption patterns. They buy certain products. They have certain kind of disposable income. And I said, can I use your information? He said, sure. So wherever Ken had elderly, I simply, when I put together a proposal, crossed it out and put black. 
and just sort of augmented with some information about that was sort of the basis of a business plan for BET. There was never a whole lot of research done on it, and not a lot of uh, analysis. It was sort of taking the concept of it and doing the same thing: target demographic, elderly, poorly depicted on television, specific kind of consumption patterns. It just mirrored the black community. Do you have any idea where Ken Silverman is today? No, I don't. I mean, every now and then he he called call me. Oh, it was about three or four years ago, maybe a little longer. He called me. He had some idea he was trying to get across, and he sort of uh, used his sort of "Gee, Bob, I help you. Can you help me?" kind of thing. Sort of a that. And I think I think I either invested a little bit of money or gave him a little bit of money to do something. But no, I don't know where he is. But he never got this channel started. Never got the channel started. He he tried. He he at one point had backing, and then the backing disappeared. And I think a lot of people like the idea. Kenny, I think, just wanted to make sure he held complete control of it, and he never could reach an agreement with any of the MSOs or any of the other investor types because he unfortunately didn't meet a guy like John Malone. That was also in 79. That's all in 79. John Malone, when and how much did you know about John Malone being at the NCTA before you approached him on this? Didn't, didn't know John at all. I mean, I, I was, uh, as I said, my principal lobbying role was with the uh, programming guys. So I knew Ralph Baruch much better than I knew anybody. And, knew and what did he do? Ralph, Ralph Baruch at that time was the CEO of Viacom. And uh, he, uh, he was somebody I knew very well, uh, both Ralph and his wife. Uh, and so I was more oriented towards the programming guys. But Malone uh, was somebody, and I, I can't recall exactly how this happened, but I do know that uh, I was sort of at a board meeting. John was on the board, and I just happened to be talking to him, and I said, you know, uh, John, you know, I, I've got, I'm thinking about doing something in cable. And he said, well, Bob, if you ever get an idea, call me. And, you know, he was not, you know, John, as you know, John, John is not the most glad handing, you know, open guy in the world. He's kind of reserved and, uh, you know, you kind of approach him with some, a little bit of trepidation. Uh, he's not like some of the other guys who I established much stronger relationship with as board members like Bill Strange, who, as you know, is the most easygoing, you know, talkative guy in the whole industry. Uh, others in the industry that I can recall uh, who I got to know real well. Uh, Frank Drendel and, and, and people like that who are all what I call good friends. Or, um, so when you, when you start thinking of Malone, you don't think of him as the guy that a young staff guy approaches easily. But uh, and then probably his orientation being more of a political conservative, mine being a background as a liberal Democrat, African-American. And you would think that there would be not much of a connection. But it turned out there was. John just happened to you know, be able to say people I believe in, I'll support. And fortunately for me, he believed in me. So when I finally got around to saying I'm going to do BET, uh, I first made the rounds of some black business executives thinking that I wanted to have them involved in the deal. I talked to some black advertising executives about buying in because I figured they had relationships with Madison Avenue advertisers who target black consumers. And I would sort of use that way to approach the deal. But I couldn't get an agreement at that level. So finally, one day I called up John Malone and said, I'd like to come out and talk to you about it. And I went out and talked to him about it. And uh, in Denver, in Denver. And uh, they were in the uh, the old uh, TCI building, the one with the uh, fake plants. <laughs> And, yeah, you know, so I, you know, I went in and uh, 
I started talking to him about this concept. And John, interestingly enough, when we talked about it, had the cable system in Memphis, Tennessee, shared with ATC, I think, at the time. And they were looking for ways to get programming in to sort of augment their franchise proposal and to, to uh, be able to say we, we're going to bring in more programming in. He sort of said, hey, you know, this idea of putting programming on a satellite would help me solve my distant signal problem. So, yeah, if you can get programming, can you get programming? He said, yeah, I think I can get programming. He said, well, if you can get programming, I think I'd be interested in uh, you know, helping you out, being your partner in the deal. And I said, okay, and uh, when I come back to you with something, I'll, I'll lay it out for you. Still in 79. Still in still in 79. Uh, let me jump ahead just a little bit. Mm-hmm. First day you went on the air, mm-hmm. what was the date? First day you went on the air was January 25th, 1980. How many hours? One of the hours, two hours Friday night. What did you have on the network? Uh, one movie and gospel programming. And the movie, you remember what it was? Yeah, something called A Visit to a Chief's Son. It was a movie about an African boy and his father uh, who meet up with a white um, sort of a safari hunter and his son, uh, father and son. So you had two, two fathers, two sons, and they sort of meet together during this African safari and they sort of learn each other's culture and build a relationship. And I thought it was a good kind of movie to put on because it would sort of send a signal to the cable industry that I wasn't going to be putting on, you know, you know, radical left wing black, you know, black power programming. So it, it uh, turned out to work. What did it cost you? Gee, I don't know. I think the film at the time we were paying like, you know, $500 a title, maybe a thousand. I don't know. It's hard for me to remember. What was the gospel music? Bobby Jones Gospel. It was uh, just basically video clips of gospel program. Uh, it was about an hour. And so you had offices where? Offices at that time were over in Georgetown on Prospect Street. How many and people worked for you? Had about maybe five or six people. Who were they primarily? Um, my sister worked for me at the time. I had a secretary named Carol Cootie who worked for me at that time. Um uh, and some other, I had a secretary named Beverly. Um, I, and I don't know if uh, Vivian Goodyear worked for me early on the first time. I think she came on later, but she later came on uh, about a year or so later after she left the NCTA. How long did you only have two hours? I had two hours uh, for about uh, six months. And then we moved to four hours, Friday night, Saturday night. How many Cable systems were hooked in that first night. I think on the first night we launched, we launched off the back of MSG. So whatever Madison Square Garden had, I think at that time, interestingly enough, when we launched with three million subscribers, we had the largest subscriber launch of any programming service in the country because we were piggybacking on Madison Square Garden sports. What did you charge? Nothing. It was free at the time. I mean, cable operators, we were just anxious to get carriage. Cable operators were anxious to put us in their portfolio because it was uh, designed to help them attract uh, franchise uh, operators. I mean, franchises in cities. So the operators were willing to carry it, but the program was free. Plus, we were piggybacking on MSG. Where did you uplink from? Uh, uh, We uplinked the signal out of Virginia, but I think it went down again at MSG and then they put it back up again. 
Did you rent studios or rent uh, yeah, facilities? We, we leased some facility uh, out in Virginia from an organization, yeah, from a company. How much money did you have in the bank, and where did the money come from? Well, the company at that time when we launched had been capitalized with the half a million dollars from John Malone. Now, prior to that, I think I had borrowed uh, about uh, $15,000 from MBW uh, that was sort of guaranteed by a contract I had with the NCTA to stay on as a consultant. And then later on, I got another $40,000 sort of a loan from the bank. Uh, but when we really uh, sort of started the business, uh, I went out to Denver after I'd been talking to John Malone. And I laid out basically what I wanted to do. John uh, listened and he said, I'd like to be an investor. How much money do you need to get it started? I said, I need a half a million dollars. He said, Bob, I'll tell you what I'll do. This is this all took place in no more than 30 minutes. He said, Bob, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I'll buy 20 percent of your company for 180,000 and I'll loan you 320. And he said, and you'll be 80 percent and I'll be 20. And he said, is that a deal? I said, John, that's a deal. But what John didn't know at the time, had he reversed the numbers and said, you be 20, I'll be 80, I would have said, John, that's a deal. But he didn't say that. And, and later on, after BET had grown and got bigger, I, I asked John, I said, John, why didn't you, you know, change the numbers around where you were putting up all the money and, and take a, and he said, Bob, I knew that you would work harder for yourself than you would for me. And it was that level of support that he gave me. So he called in his, uh, his attorney and I can't think of the attorney's name, but he called the attorney. Attorney wrote, wrote out the, 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 John said, here's the deal. This is what we're going to do. He wrote it all out. This took, I said, it took no more than 30 minutes. Gave me the document. It was a one and a half page document. I signed it. He called in somebody from the finance office. They wrote me out a half a million, half a million dollar check paid out to BET slash Bob Johnson. It was more money than I ever knew existed in my entire life. You know, I never knew that kind of, I mean, it was almost so much money. I was scared. I would say, oh, something bad is going to happen. You know, I'm going to, the plane's going to crash or something. Somebody's going to rob me or something's going to happen. But it was that half a million dollars that John sort of put in my hand. It gave me the feeling that this thing had some potential. So I get the check from John and I sign the document. And as I'm leaving, I said, John, can I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, John, I've never run a business. What advice can you give me? He said, Bob, only thing I can tell you is get your revenues up, keep your costs down. And that was, that was my business 101. And from that point on, based on what John said, whenever I would run BET, the budget would go like this. How much money are we going to make? And I'd say, okay, we're going to make $2 million this year. Then I would say, we're going to spend less than $2 million. And that's the way I budgeted BET every year until it became cash flow break even, always spending less than what I was going to make. And as we grew, we had to get more money in, but it was it was debt money, never based on spending. more. What kind of a corporation was it? It was a, it was it was a regular corporation. Who was on your board? I was on the board. Malone was on the board. My wife, Sheila, was on the board at that time. And um, Ty Brown. And Herb Wilkins. Tyrone Brown used to be an FCC commissioner. Ty Brown was the second African-American uh, appointed a commissioner and a good friend of mine. And, and Mr. Wilkins? Herb Wilkins was a venture capitalist who had been part of a group of uh, minorities 
that were trying to make sure that minorities got more ownership in cable. And he had sort of partnered with some uh, individuals in, in owning a cable system out in uh, Columbus, Ohio, a guy named Bill Johnson, who was no relation. Herb helped him get his first cable system and also some other people around the country. So he had a telecommunications cable investment background. How long did you continue to be a consultant at the uh, NCTA? I was a, a consultant at the NCTA. I think that contract lasted for about six months after I started BET. And you said six months into it, you go to Saturday nights. What, right. Two hours or four hours? Two hours. When did you expand? What's What was the progression on expansion until you had your own channel? We went for a year or we went for two years as a four hour, two hours on Friday night, two hours on Saturday night channel. One uh, year. One year. And we decided that we had to get more carriage. Well, obviously, MSG couldn't give us more time. So we start looking for additional satellite time to get on, on, on the satellite. And we, we got some more carriage under a deal with uh, Group W. They had some satellite time. So we went on one of their satellites and we expanded to uh, four hours uh, a night from, from 11 to 2. And that's three hours. That's three hours, yeah. So we went <laughs> to three hours a night from 11 to 2. And eventually, we decided that we had to go more hours, so we decided we had to get our own satellite. And that's when we started talking to the people at RCA about satellites they were launching. And I remember a guy named Andy Inglis was sort of head of that, and the idea was to figure out a way to put more, uh, to get more time by getting access to satellite time. So when did yeah. you go full-time? We went full-time in 1984. Where did you get the name Black Entertainment Television? Uh, if you recall, I was mentioned there was an organization that was started up to, to promote African-American media ownership as well as media content, positive media content called BEST, Black Efforts for Soul in Television. Uh, I at one point wanted to use BEST, Black Entertainment Sports Television, but I figured that would be too close to BEST so there, so I figured out, so I just dropped the S and went to the E, and it was just black entertainment television. And uh, that was, you know, and then I liked the, the acronym BET because the, the, uh, it had such currency in the black community, you know, bet on this, bet that. It had all kinds of things. You bet. It was something that I knew black folks would catch on right away, BET, bet, uh, and so on. So that, that I like. And the other is I wanted to put the emphasis on entertainment. And interesting, though, enough, that for the first couple years, people insisted on calling BET, Black Entertainment Television, Black Educational Television. It was just the, the, the feeling was that if any black network to see, succeed, it had to be an educational product as opposed to an entertainment product. So a lot of times people would say the Black Educational Network, the Black Educational Television, and so on and so forth. So we had that run of that, and then we had to, it was a lot of people called it Black Entertainment Network, B-E-N, and I didn't want Ben because that was the wrong image I wanted to send. So, but no, Black Entertainment Television was the name from the very beginning. When did you first change programming from movies and gospel music? We changed from movies to gospel music when uh, we found out that we couldn't buy enough movies. Once all of the other programming channels started exploding, everybody needed content. The pay channels needed content. The 
big superstation channels needed content. So the movies became uh, too expensive. So we started moving out of movies. We had run a series of something what we call black movie classics. We had gone to the Library of Congress and gotten hold of old black movies that were produced during the uh, Depression when the government funded the WPA and paid artists not only to do paintings and drawings and other kinds of things, but also to make movies. And there were a number of African-American producers at the time who produced movies. And those movies were in the public domain after so many years. And we sort of acquired those by going to the Library of Congress, having them basically give us a, a duplicate. We pay for the duplicate. They kept the master. In some cases, we, we had got right to the masters, but most of them, we ran those for a while. But as we saw that the network was not able to either buy movies that were current movies or buy current sitcoms, we started looking at music entertainment and music videos as an alternative source of programming. And this was at a time when MTV, which had started about the same time, was playing music videos 24 hours a day. But interestingly enough, they weren't playing music videos by African-American artists because they were a rock music uh, channel and African-Americans didn't do rock music. So they never uh, played those videos that they made or they didn't. The record companies didn't make the videos. And I remember coming out to a cable convention uh, to introduce BET's new programming lineup, so to speak, at a, at, a, at a session. And we showed our first music video and saying, from now on, there will be a place for African-American music videos to be seen and heard by viewers all across the country. And then we went to the record industry. We sent to the record industry like an, an album. It was like a, a 76 LP kind of cover that showed the kind of programming that we would have and the carries we had and basically told them, if you make the videos, we assure you we'll give you a platform to show them. And that's when BET stepped into the music video business. Did you ever have to pay for the music videos? Never had to pay. There was an attempt by the record companies. Uh, early, late uh, 80s, mid 80s, they were trying to get the record companies to uh, the uh, video networks to pay for music videos. And this was a time when video channels and video shows proliferated all across the land. We had a channel, MTV had a channel, Turner tried to launch a channel, if you recall. But every local TV station in an urban market had its video show. You know, they were an hour, a half hour, everybody had a video show. Uh, and the record companies saw this and they said, well, gee, you know, we should start making people pay for this. Some people paid for exclusivity. For example, MTV at the time would pay to have an exclusive Michael Jackson video or an exclusive Whitney Houston or an exclusive Madonna or whatever. We resisted that because we didn't want to get in that game. And I remember several occasions sort of boycotting certain labels because they were saying we're going to force you to pay or that they were agreeing to give MTV exclusivity on their top acts and we were paying, playing their baby acts. And we said, well, if you're going to play that game, we won't play any of your acts at all. So we fought that. I mean, that was a, a business decision I made that if this BET would never survive if we had to pay the record companies. So we were able to beat that back. And uh, since that time, as we got up with more carriage and greater visibility, greater penetration, greater brand acceptance, uh, there's, there's no, no way that the record industries will ask you to pay for it. Do you still have a relationship with BET? 
Yeah, I signed a five-year contract to keep uh, the position as chief executive officer and, and chairman, so yes. And how much do you work it now? And- oh, I'd say about 20, 25% of my time is devoted to BET. I've got a terrific chief operating officer in Deborah Lee, and she's doing a fantastic job leaving me free to do everything from basketball to hotels to whatever else I want to do. Do you feel differently about it now as chief executive officer but not owner? Um I think different in the sense that I'm not totally responsible for its future beyond my five years. When when are those five years up? In 05. Uh, So I I, I don't allow myself to think about BET in 2006 and 2007 other than with some nostalgia and with some hope and and confidence that it's in good hands and Viacom and and Deborah if she stays on. So in that sense, but I'm not plotting and scheming to where I want to take BET next. So when I go out to Sun Valley, I'm not sitting there looking at these guys and say, is there a BET deal with uh, this guy over here or a BET deal with this guy over here? So I'm not sort of plotting and scheming on that sense, nor am I sort of as as concerned about trying to sort of say, I got to continue to put my stamp on this thing of BET. Somebody else is going to stamp it. So uh, in that sense, but so it's just now looking at it as how do I sort of, you know, if you will, make sure that whatever history of BET in terms of the role that I play, that story is told. And for example, one of the stories I, I like to tell is that if you take BET from its its beginning in 80, to its sale in in 2001, for every year BET existed, it created $150 million in value. So it's like 20 times $150 million gets you $3 billion. So every year we existed, we had $150 million in value. No other African-American company has ever done that. And all of these, these firsts we were able to accomplish with BET, and BET because African-Americans got into the stock market at, through BET, we have created more African-American multimillionaires than any other company in black America or, or any other company in white America, for that matter, because very few African-Americans get in on stock in a startup very early like they did at BET. Most African-Americans who get jobs in companies get in at a mature level as executives and they get options, but the options are based on a higher value. Do you have any idea how many millionaires you made? I would say if you count them all up, yeah, it's approximately about, uh, uh, if you include me, it's about 10. And if the figures are right, you're worth uh, over a billion seven. I mean, based on the sale alone, that's right. forgetting the other things that right. you might have had. Does that make you the richest African-American in the United States? Uh, in, in terms of uh, personal network, yes. And you started in 1979 with nothing in the bank. Started in 1979 with basically zero in the bank. Does this feel unusual to you? Uh, it doesn't feel unusual in the sense that you understand how the value can be created. You know, you start with a business, you get investors, you take it public, it grows, somebody buys it based on a value that they put on it. So intellectually, I understand how the wealth is created. Uh, does it sort of give you some sense of awe that you did it? Um not so much because, like I said, I understand. That. I've, I've known there are other people I've seen who've done it. You know, Ted Turner did it. So you, you see people who, who do it. And in some cases, you see people who get it who may not even deserve it. So it doesn't. I, I think the thing is, is that 
that sort of makes me proud of the fact is that I've always been a believer that one thing African-Americans should focus on is wealth creation and wealth preservation. And so to the extent that I was able to do this and I can use that as a platform to deliver a message, wealth, preserva- wealth creation and wealth preservation is sort of the thing that I, I feel most proud of because it allows me to speak to what I think I can give voice to better. I mean, I'm, I'm not a civil rights activist. I'm not a humanitarian. I'm not, you know, a, a political activist in, in that sense, nor an artist. So I can give the expression of what I, what I do best is I think I've had a track record in wealth creation and wealth preservation, and I'd like to see more African-Americans focus on that. One way to do that is obviously through ownership. And one way to do that is understanding the economic system. And another way to do that is focusing on on how you take advantage of those things. With a career that included work for government agencies, national politicians, and cable and communications industry trade publications, Brian Lamb always believed that there should never be a single power center for communications. As early as 1969, he proposed a Washington Bureau for Cable Television for the purpose of providing informational public affairs programming. By the mid-1970s, as a journalist for CATV Weekly and then Cablevision Magazine, Lamb met all the cable industry's key figures and he began his tireless efforts to get the network funded and launched. But the road was challenging until October 1977 when the House of Representatives agreed to be televised. Lamb secured initial funding from Bob Grosenkrantz and Cablevision magazine publisher Bob Tisch and support from several other industry leaders and C-SPAN, the Cable Satellite Public Affairs Network, made its debut as a nonprofit, nonpartisan public service in 1979. Since then, C-SPAN has launched two additional networks, a radio station, and several websites of additional content and archived programming. This is the oral and video history uh, of uh, Brian P. Lamb, chairman and CEO of Cable Satellite Public Affairs Network, C-SPAN. It is being made possible by the Hauser Foundation Oral and Video History Project, the Cable Center Oral History and Video History Program. Brian, I'll start with an opinion. It's uh, often been said that uh, C-SPAN is the crown jewel of cable programming, and I, for one, agree with that. It's it's singularly the most important public and political relations project of cable television, and I'm just delighted to be able to to get you a little bit of your history involved in this whole thing. Uh, Since you are one of the most prominent names and faces in the cable industry, little is known about you personally. Would you please give us just a little bit about your background, where you came from, how you got involved, and how you got involved in uh, in telecommunications? I spent the first 22 years in Lafayette, Indiana, where I went to Purdue University and graduated in speech in 1963. I went from there to the United States Navy for four years, ended up in Washington, D.C. as a public affairs officer for two years in the Pentagon, working for the Defense Department. Uh, From there, I got back into television for a little bit, working for about a year for a UHF television station back in my home uh, town of Lafayette, Indiana. Came back to Washington, worked on the Nixon campaign for only two months at the end of 1968. As an advancement? No, I had a very insignificant job. I worked at a part of the campaign called Citizens for Nixon Agnew, which was kind of a catch-all. And anybody that wanted to work on the campaign, they, they 
had an office for us down at the Willard Hotel here in Washington. And I happened to be sent out to Wisconsin, Minnesota, and uh, Michigan for those three months, but it was not, it, frankly, I mean, in retrospect, it was not significant at all. It was more important to me than it was to the campaign. And then I came back here and worked for UPI Audio for a couple of months and then became press secretary to Senator Peter Dominic of Colorado, two years, then went to work as an aide to the director of the Office of Telecommunications Policy, Clay T. Whitehead, that was an office in the White House, 1971 through 1974, came out in April, began a newsletter called The Media Report, quickly went to work for CATV Weekly, which was owned by Stan Searle, did that for eight months. And then Bob Tisch hired me as the bureau chief uh, here in Washington of Cablevision Magazine, a brand what, new what magazine. What did you do in the Office of uh, Telecommunications Policy? I was uh, an assistant to, to Tom Whitehead, we called him. He was the director of the office. We were very young, and this was a new office that he had established through uh, Peter Flanagan, who was an aide to the president uh, at that time. It was an office to, to promulgate communications policy on behalf of President Richard Nixon. And Clay Whitehead, Tom Whitehead, was 31 years old. I was in my early 30s. I, I mean, I was, no, I was actually about 29 when I went to work for him. And I was his assistant for media and congressional relations. So you were involved almost in everything that the uh, office did at that time, as long as, it was, as long as you were there. I was, uh, for the time that I was there, I was involved in everything. Uh, I wasn't a policymaker. I was really, it was a great experience for me. I was able to sit and watch this process unfold. Uh, there were some very interesting people that worked there at the time. Uh, Antonin Scalia was the general counsel. He's now on the Supreme Court. Uh, Henry Goldberg was uh, the general counsel after he left, and he is now our personal lawyer here at C-SPAN and has been for the last 20 years and a very close friend of mine. Uh, Bruce Owen was the chief economist. He has a company here called Economist Inc. He's done a lot of work for the National Cable Television Association. And uh, it was a great place for someone like me who was a generalist. All these other people had PhDs and law degrees. Uh, as a generalist, I was able to watch policy being developed. And it was a very important time for cable television because there was a freeze on. And that's where the, it was Nino Scalia that negotiated with the industry uh, the copyright agreement that that would, took the freeze off and really let cable go. And uh, you, you felt that it was the copyright issue that kept the freeze on over all that time and, and the industry had fought it bitterly up to that point. At that, at, I think it was after that decision there that the industry finally accepted the fact that they were going to pay some copyright because it was a great division in the industry up until about 72, 73 around that area. It was not only, only a division in the industry, the courts had really come down on the side of the cable industry that they really didn't have a responsibility for copyright. But as you know, money is everything in this world. And as long as the copyright holders felt they weren't getting their fair due, they were gonna put a roadblock in front of cable. You weren't gonna get a, a, a release of the distance signal uh, rule that would allow you to bring, I remember San Diego couldn't bring distant signals in, uh, you know, from, from Los Angeles. And it's like everything else that happens in this town, it's a compromise. But we very strongly felt, and this was a very important time, that not only should cable television be allowed to flower, but all the new technologies should be allowed to flower. You didn't have satellites, domestically until 1974. And that was the key. That was the real key to what we have today called cable television. 
satellites. Had uh, had your office envisioned the use of satellites in, uh, in cable television programming? It was not. It was not only that the office envisioned it. They knew that if you were going to break the hammerlock that the three commercial television networks and the telephone company had on this country, uh, that satellites had to be open and free and competitive. And the Federal Communications Commission was on its way to making a decision that one company was going to control all satellite slots in the sky, believe it or not. Comset? No, it was probably going to be AT&T, the way it was headed. Uh, it didn't matter who it was. They were going to have, you know, the pricing was going to be set so high if that was the case that we would have never, as a C-SPAN, would have never uh, come about. But it was in that experience for three and a half years, working around with people that I thought were very intelligent, had the right motives. They weren't politically motivated at all, in spite of the fact that it was a very politically looking office from the outside. They wanted to break down this concentration of power in the communications business. They wanted cable television to uh, flower and to be able to expand. And they wanted satellites to be able to expand. So that was a critical period. And that decision, Tom Whitehead is almost single-handedly responsible as, a, as an individual for reversing the Federal Communications Commission policy that they were headed toward of having a single user, single entity control the satellite system. And it became an open skies uh, policy. And that's why you have the flowering of all kinds of communications today. And he had a direct influence on, on the FCC? Well, as you know, the town, the FCC is not supposed to have any direct influence. It's supposed to be independent, but they're like, they work for the Congress. His influence was the reasoning behind it. And he issued through the president of the United States, the policy that basically called for open skies. And that had a tremendous impact on the town, had an impact on Capitol Hill, the Federal Communications Commission and the White House, and the White House got behind the policy and said, this is what we think ought to happen. That It was only a, it's a bully pulpit more than anything else that Tom Whitehead, he couldn't go into Dean Burch and say, do this, or Dick Wiley. He had to just speak through reasoning. And that's why, in my very strong opinion from watching it, you have what you have today in communications, because that satellite business was opened up wide open. Because I remember C-SPAN's first hour of satellite time only cost $100. This place would never exist if communications uh, through satellites had cost us a grand an hour. The, the industry would have never gone along with it. It was because the cost was so low that we could do this. Had you begun envisioning a C-SPAN type of situation at that point? I don't know um, when C-SPAN actually came to mind as an entity. I remember in 1969, before I even got in the uh, actually before I went to work on Capitol Hill, that I wrote a letter to a friend of mine, Dick Shively, who used to own Telesis, which was based in Indiana. And I remember proposing to him that we create a Washington Bureau for cable television, that we would do information and interviews. And that was my way of throwing kind of my oar in the water, saying this is something that uh, this industry ought to do, and it's something that I want to do. What motivated me more than anything else from the very beginning was not cable television. I didn't really have great care in, about cable television. As a matter of fact, I've never even owned any cable stocks. I've never made any money other than the salary that I'm paid here off of cable. I'm motivated by the desire that there not be a power center in communications. And cable was one way to break that power center down because the broadcasters had a hammerlock, as I said earlier, on this country and what we heard. And that all came out of satellites and cable and the internet and all these things we've seen over the years. And so I was just there learning and trying to do my bit, which by the way, I was a bit player, always have been a bit player in this whole thing. This thing has gotten so big that there are so many players in it. That's what I hoped for when I got involved in it in the early days and it's here. 
was Dave Kinley at the FCC at that point? Dave Kenley was at the FCC when I, I, in those early years, but I don't remember whether, I mean, Dave Kenley and Phil Revere were both two very, uh, they, they were very receptive, both of those men. He was in the Cable Bureau. He was chief of the Cable Bureau, wasn't he, at Dave, that point? Dave and Phil were both head of the Cable Bureau in, in, in uh, separate times there, and they were both obviously very receptive to the expansion of this whole business. And they both were very helpful to me in the very beginning. Then the, by this time, the idea had been uh, fermenting within your mind. And how did you go about developing it from that point? Well, the key was, first of all, <clears throat> I'd worked in television in Lafayette, Indiana, for the UHF television station there. Was that Shively's at that Dick, point? Well, it wasn't. When I worked for it, uh, I'm trying to remember when Dick actually bought it. Uh, I worked for him twice. Uh, I was on it when I was in 1962 when I was a, a junior at Purdue University. I did an afternoon dance program. Um, and I don't think Dick owned it then. Dick bought it for $250,000 in that time frame back there in the, in the 60s. He was worth, you know, I mean, it was worth nothing. No one watched. He didn't have a, a network. And then when Dick bought I went back as the assistant manager for that station at the same time. Uh, that was right before I went to work for the campaign between the Navy and working on the Nixon campaign. And so Dick was a friend and very helpful. And it was through... I learned about cable probably more than anything else through Dick Shively, up close and personal. Had he formed Telesis at that he point? He had formed Telesis. And I worked for him back in 1974 as a consultant for about a year. Uh, and the experience of working in UHF television, working for cable television and Dick Shively as a consultant, writing for Stan Searle's magazine, and then when Bob Pish, uh, Tish picked me up for Cablevision magazine, it was all those experiences that led me, and I knew the satellites by then because I had been involved in that policy development with Tom Whitehead. And it was at that time that I got to know the industry. It was through CATV Weekly. And I was hired at the time by Barbara Ruger. And Barbara Ruger was the editor of the magazine. And I'd been to an NCTA convention and I'd met Barbara at the convention and along with her assistant, Judy Lockwood. And the two of them eventually came to me when I was just, I was looking to pay the bills and said, would you like to be our Washington correspondent? And that's how it all started. My relationship between the magazine and the industry was how I got to know people. You had been contributing to the magazine before that. I had not contributed until the first time I ever, I think I ever wrote anything for them was like in May of 1974, something May, June of 1974. May have been later than that. Uh, I should go back and look at that date. But Barbara, I remember Barbara saying to me, you come right for us and we'll put your picture in the column. And if you want to do this network that you're talking about, this picture and this column and this little magazine, and some weeks we only had eight pages in the magazine, I remember we'll introduce you to the industry. <clears throat> and it worked. I mean, it was the beginning of my introduction to the people in this business. And as I got to know them, and every week in the magazine, I would go out and interview a leader. And I'd take their picture and we'd put it on the front page of the magazine. I would interview them, and just like you're doing right now, I'd transcribe it myself. We'd run the interview the next week in the magazine. I'd write my column with my picture in it, and it took a long time, but it was, you know, a couple years later, everybody knew who I was in the business. And then I started to go to them and say, what do you think? Do you remember some of the people you interviewed at that point? Well, one of them turned out to be my uh, my sugar daddy, if you want to call it that, Bob, Bob Rosencrantz. Uh I remember taking a picture of him. 
Uh, and I always got a kick out of this. He's he's uh, Jewish, and it was in front of a Christian church in uh, Wilton, uh, Connecticut, where he lived. And we always kind of <laughs> joked about that over the years in that beautiful uh, New England setting. I interviewed uh, everybody from uh, Jerry Levin to Amos Hostetter. I mean, it was uh, it was the, the leaders at that time. Uh, I also remember, which is a bit off subject, but you'll get a kick out of it. Uh, in the, I think it was 1976. It may have been before that, but in 1976 at the NCTA convention, I think they invited Mike Wallace to speak. And I remember, it's probably 75, but I remember I was working out of my home over here in Arlington, Virginia. And I, when the, I found out that he was going to be the speaker, I picked up the phone and I called up to CBS 60 Minutes and I said, I'd like to interview Mr. Wallace for CATV Weekly. <laughs> <That's really> and, <laughs> and, and I did. I had no idea what I'd get. I'd never met those people before. And I was home one day and the phone rang and it was Mike Wallace. He said, do you want to interview me for this magazine? He said, why? And I said, because you're going to be the speaker of the convention. We want to put you on the cover. He said, he said, when he said to me, when can you do it? And I said, in an hour and a half, if I can get to the shuttle. And he said, well, come on up. So I literally grabbed my, my tape recorder and my camera and I got on the shuttle immediately within a half hour. I flew to New York. And I interviewed him, but it was a very instructive interview for this reason, because it's it's exemplary of, um, of the problems that existed in getting people to think about anything but the three networks. I remember asking him in the interview, I said, Mr. Wallace, why is it that 60 Minutes hasn't covered this whole issue of cable television and satellites and the expansion and the change? And he kind of was taken aback and he said, well, well, well we have. And I said, I don't think you have. I said, if you look at it, you'll see that you have. He said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we have. And he, of course... They hadn't. And um, uh, later on, we were walking around the office. He took me around and introduced me to people. And there's Mike Wallace was sitting. I mean, uh, Morley Safer sitting in his office. And it was in kind of late afternoon. And he'd been out for a long lunch. And uh, he was sitting there at his desk. And Mike Wallace went up to him. He said, Morley, I want you to meet uh, this guy, Lamb, uh, from CATV Weekly. He's writing an article about me for a magazine. And you know what he said to me? He said, and I'm standing right there. He says that he said that, uh, you know, we don't cover uh, cable television, uh, because, you know, we're in the broadcasting business. And Marley was a little loose at that point. He looked up at me and he said, well, he says, you know, he's, he's goddamn right. <laughs> and he said, we're not going to bite the hand that feeds us. And I thought to myself, I've never yeah. forgotten that. Yeah. And I've since gotten to know Marley Safer and in a nutshell, yeah, right but in there. a nutshell, yeah. that's what you're up against. And some of our own industry has been that way. As soon as they got a lock, uh, you know a lock on the business, they didn't want competition. Uh, but it's the normal nature of the human being. Why have competition yeah, when we can control it all? So, but I, that was that was how I got into this. Very clumsily, not sophisticated in any way. Didn't really know where I was going. Along the way, finding what I think, looking back on it, were the best people I've ever met. And starting with Bob Rosencrantz and Ken Gunner. And you, the, the one thing, Ken Gunner gets no credit for C-SPAN and deserves as much as Bob does uh, in the beginning because they both collectively, the two of them together said, this is something we want to support. And uh, Ken, who is a, I don't know how well you know Ken. I know of him better more than I know him. One of the, both Bob and Ken are two of the great guys of all time. Genius. But they're just, they're great people. They're decent human beings. And they were the ones, as a matter of fact, it was, Ken actually, long story, picked up the phone at a critical time, called Bob, said, Bob, where's that $25,000 check you 
promised land. He said, he's got to have the money. And Bob was a little bit embarrassed by it because they hadn't sent the check. And Bob is just terrific. Uh, sh- uh, shipped a check down overnight, and I'd gotten it the next day. And that was the beginning. But those two guys uh, are the two human beings, along with Bob Tish, by the way, who is not in this business anymore. Tell me about Tish's role in, in the development. Well, it's, let me start okay. with Barbara Ruger gets credit for understanding what I needed in order to get to know people. And so she hired me and put me in that magazine and put my picture in there. And that was the introduction. Bob Tish, who had been with uh, Stan Searle, worked for him for a while, moved out and started his own magazine, came to me at a very critical moment when Stan Searle just didn't want to go any farther with what I had. It was not his it was not his uh, uh, interest. And and he was you know, he, he just didn't want to, he couldn't fund C-SPAN. And, and I remember talking to him. And, and so we were we were not going to stay together. And Bob Tish heard about this and called me up and said, "What do you, how much do you want to make? What do you want to do? I'll, I'll not only hire you, but I will I will figure out a way to get some money for you so you can start C-SPAN. But you would, you'd already uh, pitched not, the process had, to had him not, at that point. Had not pitched the when, when Bob called me and says, what is it you want to do? I had not pitched it to anybody. And, and Bob... I mean, Barbara Ruger knew what I wanted to do. Bob Tish called me up and I re- I'll never forget it because Bob said, I want you to be my bureau chief in Washington and I'll find the money for you. And uh, the thing that I always remember, and Bob had a, went on to have a serious bankruptcy problem. He's totally recovered from bankruptcy and went on to form another company and been very successful. But Bob is, the, is another one of the unsung heroes in this thing. He let me work for him. On a full on a on a half time basis, but paid me full time for over six months so that I could put this place together. And it was after that, and in the middle of all that, that uh, Bob Rosencrantz came along and actually funded the beginning of C-SPAN. And Bob Tish was in the business. I again, I don't have the dates here, but it was like '76 when Cablevision magazine started, and that was a great. I mean, he, he was very successful. I mean, yeah, until until he got himself in financial trouble based on uh, too rapid an expansion on things other than cable television. And so now, you you now are actually in the physical process of putting this thing together uh, with the financial aid of Tish, and now you got Bob Rosencrantz uh, involved in it. In well, there are other people that should be mentioned that were critical at this moment, and then one of them is Rex Bradley. Rex Bradley was operating, he'd been chairman of the NCTA, he ran telecable, and he was running something called the Cable Satellite Access Entity. And this was a group of 40 cable operators that got together and said, hey, we got the satellite up there. Home box office started in September 1975, and they wanted to find other things to use the satellite for. That's how primitive this was. Home box office recognized it. After that, along came Channel 17, there's a little that bit of Showtime, Channel and not a Ted Turner out of Atlanta, and also Pat Robertson was one of the first ones up there with his Channel 27 WYAH out of Portsmouth, Virginia. Madison Square Garden was what Bob Rosencrantz put up there, and those were only sporting events at night. And they had this entity, and they just they called it CSAE, and they met. They put some money in the pot. And they met periodically, and they invited people to come in and make a pitch. And Bradley was a part of this. Rex he was chairman, was. Okay. president of that thing, and it wasn't a full-time job or anything. He was doing, it. he wasn't getting paid for it. But they had a meeting. 
And I believe it was August of 1977 here at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, down on Connecticut Avenue. And Rex called me up and said, you know that idea you're kicking around? And I had pitched it to a whole bunch of people. And they'd said, you know, kind of, hey, kid, go away. We don't, we're not interested. And, and Rex said, come on in and make a presentation to us. So I did. I was 77. I'd have been about 36 years old, 37, 36. And I was writing for Cablevision magazine. And I had a newsletter called The Media Report. And I was making enough money to make a go of it, living in home. Uh, and, I mean, working out of home. And I went in and I made a presentation. I said, here's my idea. Did you know at that point that you would be able to get into the chambers of the House and or the Senate? Wasn't even on the radar scope. Wasn't even what we were talking about. Um, the House had had a committee set up and had been talking about it for six years. And everybody gave up on it. There was a chart in the book. Yeah, I mean, it was a long time. And matter of fact, some of the people involved, one of the people involved over there on, on the Hill was a guy named Tony Quello, who was an aide. He wasn't even a member of Congress. And then he went on to be elected to Congress, and then now he's gone uh, and ended up on the TCI board before it was all over. But um, but that was not in the, in the offing at that point. It was point. not in the offing. I went in and made a pitch, and there was no cable news network. There was no idea of cable news network on the drawing boards. It had never been discussed. It had never been mentioned. And I went into this cable satellite access entity and I said to these group of 40 men sitting in the room, most of them, I think Beverly Land was there, was one of the few women, maybe Polly Dunn. I said to the group, uh, my idea is that we figure out a way to do public affairs, that we do our own meet the press type program because cable has no identity to this. They've never done any public service. News from Washington type of thing. Public affairs, not news. Not not a news, not not anchor people sitting at desk telling you what's happening. More interviews, interviews with members of Congress, long form interviews, something that, that uh, cable television could do. And after the meeting was over, I mean, it was a it was a resounding dud. If you want to know the truth, most people looked at me like I was smoking something like what's he doing here? You know, this is not real, is it? And Bob Rosencrantz and Ken Gunner walked up to me in the middle of the crowd. And I knew them both, but not well. Uh, and they said to me, boy, that, this, that sounds interesting. We'd like to help you. We'd like to do something. Let's, let's talk. And after that, we met. And Bob said to me and Ken, we think we can do something and we will raise $150,000 a year for you. Did they recognize the great need for public relations in the nation's capital at that point? It was not what motivated Bob and, and Ken. The public relations aspect, this is what's always- to fill up the satellite time was- Yeah, they didn't care about public relations. Bob, I mean, one of the things about Bob Rosencrantz is that you learn about him is that he is first and foremost a fabulous human being. And secondly, he's interested in doing what's right. Not, he's not, there's not a phony bone in his body. There's not a public relations bone in his body. He says, just do what's right. He never would. In the mix of all this, I've had a lot of cable operators from time to time saying this is a great PR move. But, but, it, but it never was on the lips of Bob Rosencrantz. And Ken Gunner didn't care about public relations. They cared about public service and public good and filling up the satellite and offering diverse programming. But the industry did need political relations at that particular moment, though. Well, as I went through the process and I took Bob's good name and his check for twenty five thousand dollars. And as I worked through the process, I found people, and by the way, in the early days of it, their motivation for doing this had nothing to do with public relations. One of the, the early people in this were the second pyramid, the guy has always been a very close friend of mine and always helpful from day one is John Evans. John Evans from day one 
I, there's nobody more committed to this place than John Evans. <clears throat> From day one, he was, he was a neighbor in Arlington. He was building the Arlington cable system. It was the first column that I ever wrote when I was with CATV Weekly. It was about what the importance of Arlington cable was going to be to the the uh, the regulatory process here in town. And John was there. He was on our first executive committee. I had my first meeting with him at the West Park Hotel over in uh, Roslyn, where we talked about how we could get a signal from from the Capitol over to where he is and out to an earth station somewhere. And John has been there from day one. First person to offer another $25,000 was Ralph Brute. And I met with Ralph Brute. I can remember it like it was yesterday at the Madison Hotel over on 15th Street. And I remember sitting in that room and Ralph said to me, you have my commitment for three years, $25,000 each year to make this happen. Didn't want, any, didn't want anything else from me. Didn't ask for anything. He liked the idea. It had nothing to do with public relations. The next guy was Russell Carp. And Russell Carp, I have not seen in almost 20 years. I don't know. You know, he went away from this industry after he was a president of teleprompter, and he's never been back. And I remember the meeting with Russell Carp was right over here in the Senate office building. He was testifying one day. I couldn't get to him. I had met with him prior to the whole idea of C-SPAN and and made the suggestion that we do something like this, and he turned me down. And I went up to him, and I, I said, I couldn't get in, and he wouldn't see me in his office, so I went over, and I buttonholed him outside the, the uh, Senate hearing room. And I said, Mr. Carp, I need to, can I have two minutes with you? You knew of these people from your association? Well, I with, knew him. Uh, I had interviewed Russell Carp. I had interviewed Ralph Senator Peru. from Colorado? No, I didn't know them from the senator from Colorado. I knew them from CATV Weekly Magazine and Cablevision Magazine and the interviews that I had done with him while I was in the industry. But, but Russell Carp had turned me down before, and he was a very, he was six, five or six, and big and tough and hard for a little guy like me to know how to deal with. And, uh, and But there was a, what I didn't know was that there was a political animal behind that skin. Big time. He went off to work on human rights. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, he was serious about it after he got out of the business. But I went up to him and I said, Mr. Carp, I have an idea. And I know you heard my last idea and didn't like it. This time around, we want to carry... By the way, and I should probably tell you this, there was a time when Bob Rosencrantz said, I'm not going to do this. I mean, after he'd said, yeah, I'm going to do it, he came back to me and said, the industry doesn't want it. I can't raise the money. They don't care. So He it, had tried to, to he had raise tried. money it was at that dead. point. It was dead. And that that's important for people to know because then I went back uh, to him after I found out we could get the House of Representatives to go on television. You knew that at uh, that point? They, they'd not, already committed? I did not know that at the time he said it's dead. He said it's dead like in September. And I went back to him in like November after it, it, no, that way it couldn't have been true. It was in October. The, the vote was in the House of Representatives on October the 27th, 1977. So there was between the August meeting at the Mayflower when he said yes. And then a month later, he said no. And the October 27th meeting, I went back to him and I said, I got another idea for you. Let's put the House of Representatives on television and we can do it for under $300,000 a year. And he said, I really like that idea. Let's go forward with it. And then it was from Bob Rosencrantz to Ralph Baruch to Russell Karp. Anyway, I got to tell you this Karp story because it's very relevant to why this isn't a PR move. I went up to Russell Karp and I said, here's our idea now. It's to, I've got Bob Rosencrantz's check. I've got Ralph Baruch's check. I need your check for 25000 because we want to do the House of Representatives. And Karp's light bulb went off just like that. And he almost emotionally said to me, Boy, that's a great idea. If we could have done that years ago, maybe we could have avoided the, the Vietnam War. 
It's an interesting point. It had nothing to do with the cable industry PR. So we're going through right at that point. Evans is not interested in PR. Rosencrantz, Gunner, not in PR. Baruch, not in PR. And Carp, not in PR. We're still not on PR yet. I mean, you have to go far into the industry's executive ranks before you have somebody say PR. Had Rosencrantz committed his systems to carry him at Absolutely. Bob Rosencrantz never, ever did anything but carry both networks from day one. All, all of his systems. He is. There's never been a, a, a phony story about why I can't carry it. There was never a bellyache. It's on. Going to be on both systems, and it's always been fascinating to me. Is all the, the I, all the reasons I get from people why this thing can't be carried. And Bob Rosencrantz and Gene Schneider and Jack Frazee and some of these and Ed Allen never blinked, ever blinked all through those years. We were going to be on those systems full time, all the time on all their systems. And that's why it's hard for me. And I've gotten so frustrated over the years when I have people say, well, there's a reason here we, we can't carry it. There's a re- I just, you know, and they give me all these reasons. So, I mean, these are the guys, these are the founding fathers. It isn't me. It was easy for me to have an idea. It was easy for me to go ask for help. They were the ones where their money was on the line, their businesses were on the line. They were the ones that made the decisions every day. They are the founding fathers of this network. Now I see how it developed in the early stages from the industry side. Tell me how it developed from the uh, legislative side. Well, there was uh, there was really one only one key legislative. Tim Worth. No, no. Tim Worth had almost nothing to do with making this happen. Um, he's always he's always been in favor of, but the the, the one that carried the water <coughs> on Capitol Hill was Lionel Van Derlin. And it goes back to something that when I got to know Lionel Van Derlin was when I worked for Tom Whitehead at the Office of Telecommunications Policy. The chairman of the committee up there was Torbert McDonald from Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And he was very partisan. And communications is not a partisan issue. And he did not like Tom Whitehead at all. He hated everything he did and made it sure that everybody knew that he hated everything that he did. Lionel Van Derlin was like number two on the committee. And Lionel Van Derlin was not partisan. And we would go see him and we would be able to reason with him. Because we never thought this was a partisan issue, but you got to remember the atmosphere. It was Watergate. So everything that Richard Nixon did was suspicious. And we were fighting as much for the White House as we were with anybody else in this process because they were totally occupied with Watergate. And they didn't want to fool with communications issues. And they had a knee-jerk reaction anyway to communications. They wanted to shut them down. And all we wanted to do was open it up. And so there was this constant fight going on between Capitol Hill and the media and the Office of Telecommunications Policy in the White House and the White House itself. And so Lionel Van Derlin was someone that I met when I worked for Tom Whitehead, who was very open and very gracious at that time, who when I went on to work for Cablevision Magazine and Bob Tisch, again, who funded something called Cable Video. He went out and got $15,000 from from 15 different cable execs when I went to work for him so that we could go buy a camera and a videotape machine. And I put that in the back of my car and I would go around Capitol Hill and we would have Pat Gushman who worked at the magazine as a good guy and a good supporter would, he'd set up and operate the camera and I would interview the members. And then we would take the interviews and ship them out to the districts. Lionel Van Derlin was one of the first people I interviewed at the time he was chairman. Trevor McDonald had, had either died or left Congress and, and Lionel Van Derlin became chairman of the communications committee in the House of Representatives. And I sat right over there on the Capitol lawn one day for an hour and interviewed Lionel Van Derlin. And it was in that interview, which had to have been probably in 75, 
in which Lionel Van Deren said for the first time, we're going to rewrite the Communications Act. Communications Act of 1976. We're not talking about 92 or 84 or any of those acts. It was 1976. And he did it, which made a big difference to the cable business and put cable in a position where they could they could compete fairly out there and took care of things like, I mean, it was all part of the process of the of the uh, all, all attachment agreements and all that stuff. And the copyright and it was all settled very all of that after. in that act. And he was there. And so Lionel Van Deren was an old anchorman on television out there in in, in uh San Diego, very savvy about what I was doing. And when I worked for Cablevision, I then went to him later for another interview in his office. And it was on a, it was a very interesting day. I can remember it again like it was yesterday. I walked into his office and he's sitting there. I got a picture, an old picture of him sitting there looking at what was nothing more than a black and white television set and a security system, basically, that had been set up in the House of Representatives so they could test to see what it would look like if they were on television. No one in the outside world could see it. And I'm interviewing him. And at the end of the interview, we didn't have cameras on there. It was just a, like your tape recorder, <clears throat> audio. I said to uh, Mr. Van Dieren, I said, what would you think of the idea of if the house would go on television that we could carry this to the satellite and into cable television homes for the whole day? And I know you're talking about it now. And he said, boy, that's, a, that's really a great idea. It's never been talked about. And I said, well, I can. He said, can you write me a speech on that? Well, I was immediately in a great conflict because I was a journalist and he wanted a speech from me. And I thought, how am I going to get out of this? And he said, I said, how much time do I have? And he said, oh, you got a couple of weeks. So this was in the morning. I went back to my office, which was over in Arlington, Virginia, over in, over in Crystal City. And I was all by myself in this office over there. Actually, Pat, actually, Pat Gushman and I were in this office, a little tiny office, probably had less than 500 square feet. And I didn't have a secretary or anybody. And I, the phone rang and and it was about two o'clock in the afternoon and it's Lionel Van Derlin. He said, Brian, this is Van. I'm in the cloakroom and you aren't going to believe this, but they're debating television now, that same day. And he said, I need all those figures. What were those figures on how many dishes are there out there now? How many cable subscribers? How can you do this whole thing? And he literally walked to the floor of the house right then and gave a speech off the top of his head saying, all you people worried about the networks and whether or not they're going to abuse this process and only going to run the bad things. The cable television industry is out there ready to go to put this on the satellite. And, I mean, of course, that's all we had at that time. We didn't have any promise from anybody. And they'll put it on the satellite and get it into the care. And there are already 200 communities out there that can get this. Well, you know, now there's something like 11,000 cable systems alone. Uh, and that was in the days, by the way, of the of the 10-meter dishes. Mm -hmm. $100,000 dishes. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Uh, or maybe 80. I mean, it didn't matter. But people, you know, little tiny places couldn't afford that thing. That was the beginning on Capitol Hill. It, it really had nothing to do with anybody else but Lionel Van Dierlen. And it was after that, as the idea started to take hold, and they voted on that day, 300-something to 80-something or whatever to do this. That's when things really kicked in. Then I went back to the industry and said, all right, this is serious stuff. I went to Bob Schmidt at the National Cable Television Association. He was very supportive, always was supportive from the very beginning. Tom Wheeler was there. Bob Ross was there. He went on to work for CNN and Ted Turner and build the international satellite system uh, and did a great job for Ted Turner. And made a, I mean, I was, I've always thought that Bob Ross is one of the great unsung heroes of this international stuff that uh, Turner uh, is involved in. But uh, it, was, it was Bob Schmidt then that opened the door for me to go see Tip O'Neill. And we had to do one of those days where 
you went in, had your picture taken, and he nodded. He would, he didn't understand what we were doing. He, I mean, Tip O'Neill was a great supporter of this whole concept, but he did not in the beginning understand it. His aide, Gary Himmel, did. Gary is still around this town, has a great, been a great friend, and a, and a great leveling influence from the very beginning as that thing got hot up there and politics got involved in it. And I was in some confrontation with one of the members of Congress. Gary was the cool guy in the background that kept saying, no, 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 no. You know, the fact that I'd ever worked for a Republican, even though I'd worked for Lyndon Johnson too, was in pe- some people's craw up there. They immediately took it as politics. I, I haven't been, I've never been a member of a party in my life and never will be. I've never contributed to a campaign. I'm totally uninterested in party politics. But because I'd ever worked for a Republican, the Democrats on Capitol Hill started using that as, you know, as a political thing, saying that I was up to politics. Bob Schmidt was a card-carrying, longtime Democrat. So it was able, he was able to open the door. So we had to go through all that stuff in the very beginning. You, you were re- reported as, uh, or quoted as saying in the, the jacket of this book that I quoted before, C-SPAN Revolution, that your mission was a radical one uh, to shift emphasis in television from entertainment to information and education. That's a rather broad statement that uh, you, you didn't directly quote it, but it is on the jacket cover of, uh, of the book. Is that basically what your intent was at the time? Well, I'm fairly radical when it comes to this because, um, you know, I, I can't stand to be spoon fed by any media. Uh, I want choice. I read five, six newspapers a day. I listen to lots and lots of radio. Uh, and on television, it was quite narrow. And so the more television you can give me, the better. I mean, the fact is that we're going into the digital age and there'll be a couple hundred channels out there. It's not enough for me. I mean, you know, look at a good magazine rack in a good bookstore, 3,000 periodical choices there. That's what America's all about. And I think the real crime in this town was that the political system uh, from day one when it came to television only meted out these licenses free of charge to very few people and often to people who had the money, had the political clout, got them and kept them and have keep and have kept them and resold them. And, you know, now and, and it's a fascinating thing to watch. It's taken forever to break the system down. So from I am a radical. And when it comes to this stuff, I just, just like why you refer to it as a revolution, quote unquote. Absolutely. And it's hard for people in this country to to uh, uh, to live with it. There are a lot of people that are unhappy, both in the political system and even in the media world right now, that this is no longer only the purview of three companies in New York City. It's all over the lot. You've got, I mean, Turner's networks alone come out of Atlanta. They don't come out of New York City. You've got the, the, all these networks around when Black Entertainment Television comes out of Washington, D.C. We come out of here. Discovery comes out of, actually, I think they're transmitted out of Connecticut. But it's all over the United States. It's a breakdown of the concentration of thought. And that's what you're after. And that's what, what's, what's so spectacular about the Internet and that this industry is playing such a role when it comes to these modems, uh, making the speed so good for people that you're, you can't. There's not enough time in the day to even begin to watch all the programs available. And that's the way it should be. You've just heard Cable Cowboys and American Entrepreneurs. We hope you'll join us again soon. Until then, this is Luke Woodruff for the Cable Center the nonprofit educational organization that helps support and fuel the ongoing legacies of the cable industry's innovations and leaders. Thank you for listening. 